This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. <sighs> spring is springing here at the cabin. The wood poppies are all blooming yellow. The ramps on the side of the house look like they're close to ready for picking. Bloodroot is starting to uh, pop up with its white flowers. The buds on the trees are all becoming quite green. We got some buzzing of some bees in the house and the carpenter bees around the house digging holes in the cabin. And there's a uh, peacock. Perfect timing. My landlady's peacock, clearly maybe it's in some kind of rutting behavior like the uh, turkeys are right now. It has migrated down the mountain, and it's been hanging out in our yard for the past two days. So we've been waking up to the wonderful sound of this peacock here, who's been strutting its stuff. It's albino, and when it um, puts its fan out, I mean, it must stretch 10 feet. It's enormous. So anyways, today's episode I find really wonderful for a handful of reasons. Um, We are speaking with Ron Baim, who is a, a hunting dog enthusiast, expert, He's um, a wing shooter, a uh, shotgun collector, old-time shotgun collector. We don't talk about that much on the podcast. But uh, he's also the host of his own very popular and long-running podcast called The Hunting Dog Podcast. And, well, the first time I heard and saw Ron was I was still living in New York City. Um, This is probably four and a half years ago now, maybe a little a pinch longer, maybe five. And uh, I was getting ready. the 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 woods were calling, and I was binging everything that. Thank you, Peacock. I was binging everything that uh, Meat Eater, the books that were just out then, and um, the show. And in in my Brooklyn apartment, watching the show, it, whatever season it was on, it had an episode called Southern Traditions, and it was took place in the Shenandoah Valley, which was wonderful to see because my mother lives kind of at the base, well, very much so, lives at the base of the Shenandoah National Park. And if you go over the top of the mountain and back down, then you're entering the Shenandoah Valley. So basically to see the landscape that every time I would leave New York to visit my family, that was the landscape. And and uh, growing up in the suburbs, the Shenandoah National Park was about one hour away, 45 minutes to one hour away. So it's a landscape I was familiar with. So to see this episode of Meat Eater where they're going out for um, they're going out for pigeons and for morning doves and just to see my landscape and just to see the tradition element was awesome. And in it, you see Ron, 
And Ron lives in Michigan, but he has a home here in the Shenandoah Valley, which you'll hear about. And we actually recorded this podcast on his deck, which is featured in the show, where at the very end of the show, they're cooking up their uh, their dove, their pigeon and their dove. And that's exactly where we recorded this episode. So I recommend going and checking that out. You get to see Ron doing more of his wing shooting and uh, melting um, melting down lead to make the shot for his shotgun, which is pretty cool and has an old-timey feel to it. But on this episode, I just wanted to hear about his life with dogs. And um, anything I say in this podcast, take it with a grain of salt because I've never even had a dog. I grew up with cats. And to be honest, I was kind of nervous around dogs kind of growing up. I didn't really feel much of a connection. And even when I moved here to this property, my landlady's farm dogs kind of scared me a little bit. They were these big, they're these big uh, Turkish Anatolians and, um, they're pretty feisty. I mean, they never go inside. They never go inside and uh, they're pretty wild. And it's become interesting as I lived here to start having a relationship with those dogs and really loving them. And also, um, I guess in with some level of subconscious understanding for animal dog behavior, uh, establishing myself as dominant over the dogs and not being... Um, not being timid around them anymore or afraid they might jump up, but kind of sh uh, showing them, nope, you don't jump, and like pl gently placing my hand on their back. Our relationship with the dogs has totally transformed, and now they're very, very docile around us, um, and we really love those dogs. So um, we've been really thinking about getting our own dog, and we've been looking. My girlfriend really wants one. Vivian really wants one for the house, and I really want one to add to uh, my exploration of the sacred art of hunting. And certainly I can see how using a dog to hunt, um, if, if you've never been, if you've never learned about it or heard about it, it can seem maybe a little weird or a little barbaric or a lot of question marks, especially I know a lot of people that live out here, they, might not think too highly of the guys who have hounds and they pursue bears with hounds. And uh, I didn't know how I felt about that until I heard a lot about it. I talked with the guys on the mountains, um, the actual houndsmen, and uh, and I kind of watched some of it. I've never taken part. It's, I have no personal experience with it. Um, and Ron today, he's not a houndsman. He, he's a bird man. He, so it's a little different what, what his interests are, but we're just going to hear about the connection between Hunter and his dog and how that companionship and the symbiotic uh, bond can uh, really be a powerful life experience and, and also an ancient one. And with that, I wanted to read, I mentioned the sacred art of hunting. I wanted to read a little bit from the sacred art of hunting. This is a book that I've referenced a handful of times on this podcast. I've read from it at least two or three times. And it's by James A. Swan, who's a psychologist, very much of the Jungian approach. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I very much love Carl Jung um, and that type of uh, psychology, psychoanalysis, um, which is very much interested in symbolism, dreams, archetypes, et cetera, et cetera. So let me read you this quick little excerpt. And it's funny how something I'm going to read in these two paragraphs, three paragraphs, 
will exactly correlate with something that Ron is going to say later in the podcast in his own way. This is from the chapter, which is called Animal Allies. All members of the canine family are carnivorous hunters. Domestication in itself is a radical change in behavior. The fact that some species have learned to continue the chase but not devour the game killed by the hunter is a remarkable achievement in evolution and trust. Dogs have been hunters' allies for at least 10,000 years, while some suggest 150,000 years. Bred from wild canines to enhance certain traits, each breed has special attributes— pointers, setters, retrievers, flushers, trackers, etc. One remarkable dog is the gray or black Scandinavian dog that looks like a miniature husky, commonly called an elk hound, that carries its tail curled on its back. In reality, the dog is not a hound, nor does it hunt elk, but it surely is among the most skilled of all hunting allies. The Norwegian Elghund, proper spelling, is a member of the Spitz group, a breed that is at least 8,000 years old. While they make lovable pets, the dogs imprint heavily on one person. In the days of the Vikings, Elkhuns were buried with ship captains so that they would be able to continue the hunt in Valhalla. Elkhuns can hunt small game, but they are especially skilled at tracking and holding large game, such as moose. They trail by following airborne scent, and when a moose is cornered, they hold it at bay for upwards of an hour and a half while barking shryly to let the hunters know where the moose is. Some elk hunts are also specially trained to track wounded game, following blood trails much like bloodhounds. Some anti-hunters argue that using dogs is cruel and inhumane. First, from the dog's perspective, it would be inhumane to deny them the opportunity to hunt, for it's in their nature. Second, a dog that holds game for the hunter makes it easier for the hunter to make a killing, humane shot and to track down wounded animals. There's an extraordinary bond between a man and his hunting dog, which sometimes takes on almost supernatural qualities. So from my perspective, having never had a dog and just being able to observe the dogs here on the property, which are pretty wild, it's fascinating to see them live a wilder version of a dog life. I mean, very often I'll see one of them walk by with a rabbit in its mouth instead of a chew toy. And I go over there, hey, what, what, Butters, what do you got in your mouth? And I go to get the, the rabbit and it kind of saunters, it like puts its head down, nope, that's mine, and runs away. Or another time I came up and one of the big dogs had a raccoon in its mouth, completely dead, middle of the day. And I said, Blue, what are you doing with that raccoon? And he just kind of looked at me shyly and kind of just walked away through the trees. And it's like, you know, it's so funny. You know, you, you see dogs with their squeaky toys shaking their head crazily. We all laugh how cute it is. Well, that right there is the behavior of an animal breaking the neck of a, of a little rodent or a little critter. So even if you only have a pet dog, I hope you'll enjoy this. I thought it was really interesting. We get into history, we get into culture, we get into how it works. And then Ron shares his stories. And uh, not only is the ending quite heartfelt, as Ron kind of describes what the emotional burden of having um, having this kind of relationship with, uh, with an animal is, um, but also he tells this wonderful story that's not related to dogs, just about growing up in Chicago and where the only place to have a wild woods experience 
was in the graveyards. You can check out Ron and his dogs at the Hunting Dog Podcast on Instagram. Hunting Dog Podcast is up on Apple and wherever else you check out, you can uh, check it out. And in this episode, we'll kind of uh, talk about a few of the episodes that could be really cool to listen to if you're a first-timer to his podcast. And before we get into this one, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a preview for things to come. Nothing is exactly locked in stone, but it looks like some upcoming guests we are going to be talking to the peacock. And we are going to be speaking with the winner of um, History Channel's Alone, season six, Jordan Jonas. He lives down here in Virginia. And we're going to hear, well, what I hope to talk about is his time living with the indigenous people in Siberia called the Avanki, and they're reindeer herders. And I want to hear all about that life. Um, we're going to be talking with my mom's herbalist mentor, who's a family friend, um, Teresa Boardwine. And I've reached out to the master of foxhounds huntsmen for a fox hunting club out here, pretty close to where I am in Virginia, a club that uh, dates back to 1887. And the fox hunt in America, they no longer actually kill a fox. They just uh, pursue it. And this is done on horseback, kind of dressed up in fancy attire, like it's, um, you know, the mid-1800s. And they're on horseback with foxhounds. And it's all about the mastery of the horse. And again, this is a topic I know almost nothing about. And she is a prolific writer. So I'm hoping to have her on the podcast to tell us what that's all about. A little another glimmer of culture out here in Virginia. So with that, from me and the white peacock outside, I hope you are enjoying the podcast and the diversity of topics that we're covering and the diversity of guests. And uh, I really appreciate you listening. And let's get into today's with Ron. I work on the road in construction, or I had all my life, and we got a project down here in Virginia that was supposed to be six weeks long. That turned into six months, which turned into about nine years of straight work. So I kind of closed my doors up in Michigan and bought this place so my guys would have a home to be in instead of a motel. And uh, of course, I was—I took the good—I took the room with the bathroom in it. I took the master bedroom, but we built rooms downstairs. We built bunk beds. We had a camper in the backyard for overflow. Sometimes there'd be, you know, 10, 10, 12 guys living here for a couple weeks. Oh, wow. And, uh, camp work camp. It was, yeah, it was, it was kind of like an old school work camp. Uh, everybody, you know, you could park, we didn't have a fence around it at the time. We had a horseshoe pit out there and every night after work, it was, it was probably like they did in the, up in the logging camps. Like, yeah, back mining camp back. Yeah. They probably played a little horseshoes or a little cards and There'd always be a card game going at the kitchen table. There'd always be a, you could always hear the cling. In fact, my neighbor Galen down to here, he's a lifelong resident of the valley. They go way back. And um, as soon as he would hear the horseshoes hitting the, the stakes, he'd wander up the hill and get in on one of the games. Yeah, that's fun. Turns out he was a pretty good horseshoe player. Nice. Yeah. Well, say a little something about 
give a visual for where we actually are, like the region. Right. So we're we're like smack dab, not quite in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley. Um, you can hear the roar of eighty one on a quiet day when the when the wind's just right. And uh, got the national park off in the distance. Right. We have the blue. Uh, yeah, the national park, the Blue Ridge Parkway mm-hmm. um, is off to our east and. As I learned from one of your podcasts, I've been saying that's the Appalachians, and I thought he said it was the Alleghenies. Oh, yeah. Is Ed might different? have said that. I'm not sure. That is part of Appalachia. That's what I thought. Yes. But, you know, then all the mountain ranges have their own names within right. it, like the Mahongahela or whatever. Right. Those. And he said Alleghenies, and I'm like, boy, I thought that was Pennsylvania. Huh. But interesting. Who knows? We'll figure it out. We might have to Google that and take a pause. On my drive here, the Shenandoah National Park was covered in like a blue mist. Like They're a, doing controlled was, burns right now. Are they really? Yeah. Is that what that was? Yep. Well, it's stunningly beautiful. Yeah. It's like these amazing layers. Like flat clouds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that coming down the valley. And, you know, one of the reasons I, when I came to this place, I, I, I've traveled and literally worked in every state in the union except Alaska and Hawaii. Traveled hmm. a lot in Alaska, but never worked. And when I got down 81 and I could see those the mountains on both sides and the way the farms lay out with the topography, I, I just like, I, I literally thought, God, wouldn't it be great if this job lasted forever? And it damn near did. Wow. You know, and, I, and that was just a drive down here in January to come look at a job. Wow. Well, maybe later in the podcast, because I have some ideas for how to do an intro here, but maybe later in the podcast, it'd be cool to hear your thoughts on Virginia, because it's not really a state you hear too much about for the outdoors person's life. Mm-hmm. But um, to me, it's outrageously beautiful here. Um, well, oh, before we get away from our current setting, I mean, your work camp house here is completely filled with absolutely wonderful old prints and old, yeah. like that's what I love. That's my aesthetic, like vintage illustrations yep. of animals and wildlife. I saw some super old looking antique gun. Yep. I love all that stuff. Old muzzle loader. I have an old pinfire gun. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a historian. I was not a, uh, I was not a stellar student, so higher education was not for me, mm. but- I've always had this passion for things that are old. Mm. You know, we spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house in central Virginia or central Illinois. Mm. Um, and and it, almost comically, the name of the town was Virginia, Illinois. Well, weird. And then I end up spending a, a good decade of my life in the state of Virginia. Mm. Um, yeah, I just love this place. Uh, the uh, Illinois, just for the listener, Illinois yeah. is where you grew up. Huh? Yeah, I grew up literally in Chicago city limits. Mm. Okay, and. Uh, We'll, we'll probably get into yeah, that. Yeah, that's your story. That's that's my story. I can't wait for that. But uh, yeah, I came down here for like a, a short job, and then it turned into a six month job, and then we had rumors that it was going to be a a you know year after year expansion of the plant, and the plant manager and the project managers liked my crew, and they pretty much wanted a commitment from me and my crew that we would be here for all these projects. Which and, were with the dairy farmers? It, well, it was actually that plant was owned by dairy farmers. Hmm. Uh, it was a co-op, and then it was bought out. All those dairy farmers were bought out, and then like Morningstar Foods, which was a Dean Foods company, part of another company, all in the all in the milk business, and uh, they bought it and started really modernizing it. You know, it, it really was just a milk plant. It was a place for. Have you seen all these? cows you know from one end of the valley to the other I, I didn't realize there was that many cows in the state of virginia oh man yeah i mean it's it's oh, like yeah. the west <laughs> yes it really is a small version of it and uh so 
yeah they they opened that milk plant <clears throat> as a as a lot of farmers do in a co-op fashion hmm. so they didn't have to haul their milk to another place to have it processed saves on shipping saves on makes more profit and they uh they got to be it got to be that point where companies started buying all their little companies you know and they uh they were bought out and then big big project managers came in with drawings and architects and they said we're gonna they literally bought a surrounding farm around that plant hmm. so they could expand in two directions hmm, interesting and uh so that that's that's that was my home here for almost 10 years super cool and i and i refused to get rid of it and my wife wants me to sell it and i keep telling her i'm fixing it up <laughs> i, I want to come down for dove season i want to come down for grouse season in the mountains well we're um, gonna hear about that yeah we will yeah. um okay well let's get into it so the reason I'm having you on my podcast is because you have an incredible podcast. You've been on an, a handful of episodes of Meat Eater, and your whole thing is dog hunting. And this is, or hunting with dogs. Hunting with dogs. And this is a topic I know extremely little about. I've, I have no personal experience with it. I've been looking into getting a dog because my girlfriend wants a buddy for the house, and yeah. I'm interested in having a dog with a, to have this hunting relationship mm -hmm. with it. Um, so, Let's kind of get in a little bit of that. And I thought the, the way we could structure this intro is because really the point of this podcast is to meet passionate people and have their stories told. Yeah. So if we're just getting into a topic, uh, it has to be like at a very general level because there might be people listening who are, their passion is herbalism. Right, right. So we need to, so anything I like I don't caving, need to get into breed specifics and- No, so yeah. I very much enjoy your podcast. Um, but some of them, for someone who doesn't even own a dog, it's like, it's very esoteric. Right. So for me, the ones I love are, you have an a historical episode about the plot hounds. Right. Incredible. Yep. You, know, you had a recent one about um, a guy who trains anti-poaching dogs in Africa. Right. Incredible. I right. love that. Yeah. Um, you had a puppy 101 with a guy here in Virginia, I believe. Yeah, I think that was Al. Al. Yeah. Loved that for someone who's trying to look into this. Right. So I thought a cool way to start this would was if you know nothing, kind of like me, right? Especially me when I lived in New York five years ago. Can we like? Um, could you give a summary of the categories of hunting dogs? Because there's totally different, right? You have the they have the treeing dogs. Like, could you kind of do you, a you, quick yeah? You got to break down. You got basically you've got hounds. Really, there's only three. Okay. There's hounds, flushing, and and pointing. Okay, and can we describe those a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, we could kind of touch on, and you know, the hound gets, uh, the hound is used for tracking and for treeing at some point because that's the end result. the The animal escapes to the tree typically, or to a rock pile, and in the, and it goes right down to the small hounds like the beagles. It's still a hound, and you rabbit hunt with those, but it's always about the tracking and the the driving of the game. Mm. You know, rabbits fortunately run in a circle, so. and this is mainly scent. Yeah, all yeah, all, all, scent. all scent. Yeah, and can you describe what happens if it's a treeing? So for squirrel, or for bear, or for raccoon, what happens when we tree? Um, or well, what's the goal? I, the goal is to going all pre-electronics out there in the woods. Historically, the goal was that the dog would have to have a strong voice, um, and it has to bark. And, and good hound hunters could literally run with four different people's dogs and their dogs, and they can hear that bark. Like, we hear it all sounds the same to us. Mm -hmm. And he would say, that's my daisy girl. 
she's on that tree right now. They, they have an ear for it that we don't develop as, as dog owners. Mm. You know, what most dog owners develop is a, oh, my dog needs to go outside. Mm. You know, but the bark is always the bark. Mm. It's just a bark, but not to a houndsman. There's a lot of different barks. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the hound. In the hound world. And, 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 and historically, too, got to remember, there, there, was no, there was no canine used for hunting in this country when, when we first got here. You know, I, I, I can't speak to Native Americans and their use of dogs. Yeah, I do was, want to know about that. Yeah, I and I, I, am, I am no way, I'm probably no way the guy to talk about it. But from what I've read with Lewis and Clark journals and conversations with people, sometimes the dog was as much a food source yeah. as it was something to help watch the camp at night. Yes. Um, so <laughs> that... And we'll, we'll go on a quick tangent here. But so yeah. the dog I'm interested in is the mountain feist, which is used for squirreling, for right. treeing squirrels. Right. Um, I've heard a lot of it, a lot about this from Clay Newcomb, from a handful of dog podcasts right. and watching videos on YouTube, reading books about it. Um, heard a great guy who has gray feists here in Virginia. Mm-hmm. I think his kennel is called Gray Kennel. Okay. Um, I heard him on a podcast. He was saying that the feist might be a mix of Indian dog, of Native American dogs, have it in there. I thought that was kind of interesting because it's a mutt breed. Yeah, it's definitely a mutt breed. There is there is no pedigree per se unless you hold your own pedigree and write it down in a journal. Mm. Um, it is, it's definitely most of the most of the feist dogs that I'm aware of. Yeah, they were kind of they were good at what they did and they became known as squirrel dogs. Mm. It's like you would not. And now there's people, and I have been told that Virginia is one of these states when you're looking for a feist. Really? That there are, it, it's like one of them, it's kind of like you found your place here in, in Virginia mm-hmm. and you started finding these interesting people that you didn't know existed mm-hmm. while you either lived here earlier or those years you spent in New York. Mm-hmm. And there are those people that would live in this holler or that valley that were known for like, oh yeah, he always has good squirrel dogs. Mm. But it just didn't. It never, it never left the area. Hmm. You know, his dogs might might get squirrel hunted if the neighbor took one and the kid kept squirrel hunting with it. Might not. Might just be a yard dog. But yeah, squirrel dogs they're kind of becoming quite a thing now. Hmm. Um, but yeah, as far as the the lineage, yeah, it's a Heinz fifty seven for sure. The, what does that mean? It's just it. You don't know how you'd have oh, to. Oh, Heinz fifty seven, a mixture of right, ingredients. Y- yeah, you'd yes. have to. You'd have to do DNA testing to figure out. What in the that, heck was in the there? The guy Gray, this uh, Gray Kennels, mm-hmm. he was saying that the feist is um, is that very, very, very much an American historical dog. That all that basically every hollow on the East Coast would have had a feist in it, and uh, you know it would have been for homesteaders. It would have right. been their var- you know to get varmints right. and be help with food, and also be even though they're tiny little Jack Russell-y kind of looking, yeah, they um they would they will defend a person to death till the death right. of themselves. And, and they'd also be good at what what the what the Europeans still looking for a dog is getting rid of vermin, getting rid of yeah. we- weasels, mink, mm. skunks, things like that that are around the farm. Mm. So, you know, Interesting. I would I would bet that you know, I think you've heard a little bit of the the history of the plot. You know, Johannes Plot came here in the 1700s, right? Your episode with him is so awesome. Keep going. Yeah, and uh yeah, I, I would, 
I'm I'm ashamed that I haven't drove down there and done another episode with him in person. He's he, in Tennessee or something, or no, North Carolina, North, North or South Carolina. North Carolina, yeah. yeah. Bob Plot and uh, I would, if I was going to take a bet, that those feist dogs are all. A lot of the dogs on this East Coast were those kind of hounds, fox hounds, bear hounds, uh, even the deer hounds, which are you know uh, more like they're more like English fox hounds. Deer, okay, deer hounds historically were, but um i would say that those that reference to native american dogs i would bet if there was a dna test that could show that mm. we wouldn't even know how to recognize it because we don't know what they had for dog. Mm. i think they were just opportunistic that dog bred with that dog i'm sure some of johannes plot's dogs bred with english pointers mm. that happen to live on the next farm mm. you know I, I, to this day people still have accidental breedings I didn't realize my dog was in heat, yeah, right? Yeah. So those feists are, you know, definitely to say feist, that was, that's an American made product. That's cool. Just kind of like Americans are with a lot of little, a lot of different, you do 23 and me and you find out. You're a mix. You're a mix. It's melting pot yeah. dogs. I, I found out I had some sub-Saharan South African in me. Nice. Yeah, I was cool. like, wow, didn't know that. Very you cool. Know? So that's what a feist would be. But So, um, okay, so the hound, to do a quick summary of the hound, so you're saying it's a tracking dog. Um, uh, you basically, it ends at, the tree, basically, it, or it ends, ends at a at, fox den it, or something. Yeah, it ends at a tree okay, or so, a den so or a rock pile. What is the quarry? What is the game that that a fox, a houndsman is pursuing? What are the types of animals? They're going to be all your your apex predators, mostly. Okay. I, I mean, and I don't know if you want to consider a red or a gray fox an apex predator, but mm -hmm. they're a darn good predator. And then up to coyotes, up to mountain lions, bobcats, bear, anything out raccoon. there. Raccoon. Raccoon. It's, it's a yeah. And any basically, you're you're chasing furred game. Got it. Mm -hmm. um, with with a hound. There's um. Uh, I reached out to her. She's um somewhere around here, but um. There's a huge Virginia culture with the fo the equestrian fox hunting, mm -hmm. and that's a sport where there's no death involved. They no longer right. it doesn't end with the death of a fox. It's right. just about the um the skill set with the horses. Again, I know nothing about right. this, but there's a woman here, Rita Mae Brown, who's I'm trying to get her on the podcast to talk all about That'd that culture. That'd be a good yeah, one. Yeah, and it's very, you know, they dress kind of like old European. Oh, yeah. They, they, they have the rules. They got rules. Right. Like, they're, they're not a bunch of what we call Michigan Jack Pine savages. No, right? no. They, they dress like they woods. did 200 years ago. Yeah, but but fancy 200 years ago. Right, fancy. Not, not in skins. Well, 200 years ago, only fancy people hunted <laughs> in England. <laughs> right. right. You know, right. the rest of them were working in factories and farms. But, right. You know, and that's where we're so different here. But yeah, the hounds, the hounds are using their nose to to pick up a trail, and at that point, to follow that game for X amount of hours. And, and there's always a there's always scenting conditions that come into everything. But in the right scenting conditions, you know, those hounds could certainly pick up a track that went by six or seven hours ago. It might not be one that you want to pursue, uh, being in the fact that. If you're not hearing anything happening with the dogs and they're they're just picking away at it, it might not be a very hot track, but they're very capable of of old tracks. Um, and then they're vocally going to let you know when they've cornered. Right. They're going to let you know with their voice. They're typically the ones I've seen, the the few I've hunted with, they're pretty quiet as they're doing their job of tracking. Mm -hmm. And then they when they get something that. With their nose, which we'll never understand dogs' nose. I mean, mm -hmm. somebody can, but I can't. Mm -hmm. 
the the quality of it when that those scent molecules get stronger and it's a fresher track it just smells just like getting closer to a bakery mm-hmm. you know you might smell a whiff of it one day but you went right by the bakery like wow i can smell sugar mm. so when them dogs feel that you know that's a stronger scent it's a fresher scent then they'll give out a certain kind of a bark or a chop or you know and i'm not a houndsman um and then the houndsman knows now they're closer to their game mm-hmm. and then that takes x amount of time and then when they get to a tree it let's say if it's a bear it goes up a tree bobcat will go up a tree uh mountain lions certainly go up a tree raccoons everything mm-hmm. pretty much goes to the tree when they're you know when they're running and, and trying to hide and when they get to that tree they'll have a whole different bark it'll be i've heard it called a chop i've heard it called a lot of things i'm not an expert but um in, in the bird dog world we we never pay attention to what our mm-hmm. our dog's bark sounds like interesting and uh in fact there is uh there's competitions for coon hunters out there again and it's i believe that's a no kill competition but they'll get into an area where they know there's raccoons and it's called a night hunt because well just to be yeah. clear for someone who doesn't know anything about this right. the hound is not killing an animal it's getting no, it, for it, it, 99% of the time. It's, yeah, it's, it's not, getting to, right. it's telling you where the animal Usually is. Usually the ones that will engage with an animal are the ones that get hurt. Mm, interesting. You know? Now they got to have grit. Mm-hmm. They got to be able to stand them off a little bit. Um, but yeah, the idea is they. a lot of people call it catching when they tree a bear or mm-hmm. they tree a squirrel or whatever. They, they caught it. And uh, I remember meeting a hound hunter here, um, lost his contact information. He was a police officer here in Rockingham mm. County. Met him up at the campground where I was camping, and he, his grandfather was a hound hunter. Hmm. His dad was kind of a sometimes hound hunter, but it kind of skipped a generation to him, and he had only killed two bears in his whole life. Okay, well, I wanted to say that because I yeah. think some people think you're going around with a pack of dogs to go get a bear. They think this it's, is ruthless and savage, yeah. but I've bear hunted in the National Forest here mm-hmm. on the West Virginia border. And uh, I'm just doing it on foot, just trying to track sign, mm-hmm. um, following scat and acorns and all sorts of stuff like that. Right. And I, but I've met three bear hunters on the road, houndsmen, right. Right. and talked to them while they were in their trucks on these back gravel roads. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked them, like, how many bears do you guys get, like, kill a year? And they, they'll always be like, we don't kill any. Right. You know, they, they're just doing it's it. It's about the chase. Correct. It's about, the, it's about getting your dogs better. It's about listening to the dog. You'll hear them say they just love the sound of the dogs in the mountains. Just, yeah. you know, burr, burr. So I to thought them, that, that's music to their ears. Right. I, so I thought that was very interesting that it's almost like a catch and release, right. like with fishing or something, a lot of the times. Right, right. And, and there's certainly a lot of bear hunting. Yeah. I, I, I know there's a lot of bear taken right here. in. I think actually where we're at in Augusta County, we're just south of the Rockingham County line here. Hmm. In Augusta County, if I'm not mistaken, at least years ago, they were averaging seven to eight hundred bear a year in Augusta County. That's wild. It's a big county, mind you. But <laughs> my stepdad was just saying he read that in the Shenandoah National Park, which again is we can see it, and right. that there are two bears per square mile, and it might be one of the most dense areas in America for yeah. bears. So we got a lot of bears here. Yeah, there's there's bears. I have yet to see one here, but really? my my neighbor has seen one okay. a mile from here. Yeah, we've had them walk. I see them all the time where I live. We've seen them walk across the front of the deck. You're going to be seeing them more and more. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's do the next category. So we did hounds. Let's do, you want to do? Let's do the retrieving world or the what we, 
what I would consider the retrieving dogs, which are specialists in wait, retrieving. Wait, before we get away from hounds, sorry. No. Maybe we could just list a few of the uh, breeds. Well, there's there's plot hounds, there's walkers, blue ticks, red bones. Um, I'm I, I'm drawing a blank on more cur, of them. Right. Well, a, a, a cur would be a hound. It's, I don't the really fox know hounds. if that, there's fo English foxhounds, American foxhounds, um, and other than the plot, I believe all the other breeds were basically from the English foxhound. Oh. Fascinating. That because that those were the first dogs that came here in numbers to people who had land and money, and they brought the dogs over from England. And, and you then said they, the beagle too, right? The be, the beagle. I don't know if the beagle's roots. Um, I don't know where that came along, but I would bet it was. I would bet that was from Europe also. I know it was not one of the breeds that was established here. Interesting. Um, I believe the Chesapeake Bay Retriever huh. is one of the few breeds, and uh, there might be a handful. Okay. All right. Next. Yeah. So the retrieving world or the flushing world for bird dog people. Are, is, are those terms interchangeable? Yes and no. Okay. If, because when you think of retrieving, you think of waterfowl. Okay. So that would have been the strongest use early on of, of the, goal, or of the uh, Labrador retriever. Okay. Chesapeake Bay retriever, curly-coated retriever, um, the cocker spaniels, the the large and small. Like I have a small cocker, so a, cute. Yeah, little taffy, um, and then there's a larger version of that called a Springer. Those are all what you would say retrieving specialists. Their their retrieving is their natural retrieving is always there for the most part. As far as picking something up and put it in their mouth. When we when I say the word flusher, when you use a retrieving dog for upland birds, it does not have the pointing instinct that the pointing breeds do. So that dog's job is to produce the bird in motion. When he gets, when that dog dog gets hot on on something, you expect him to dive in there and make that bird rise, busting them up, bust them up, okay. and uh, and so mainly the application is ducks, waterfowl. The the, the historic would have been more that. Okay, um, would have been using it for retrieving ducks, and especially back in the market hunting days. Okay, you know the Labradors and the Chessies were put to work just like. People in a work camp. Interesting. I mean, you know, there was there was hundreds of thousands of ducks shot for the markets, mm -hmm. and those dogs had to retrieve them. Got it. Um, you don't do a lot of duck hunting on dry land now. That's different these days because you can find mallards and geese in farm fields in in every state in the union. You can mm. find geese. I've shot geese right here in the valley. Mm. I don't need a Labrador retriever to go get it. I walk out in the field and get it. All right. You know? It's it's on the ground. So yeah, the difference is you're talking about Chesapeake. So you're talking about like swamps, marshlands. The, the you coast, need a dog to go out there salt and get water, it. Saltwater, yeah, the sea ducks. Yeah, it their specialty was their coat was special for it. Oh really? They're, they're, How so? Well, they would have a dual coat, an undercoat, and an overcoat. Huh? And and a and definitely a I don't want to say a layer of fat, hmm. but their skin is tougher. They would definitely be a stockier what we would almost call fatter dog okay because to stand that cold temperatures oh, and okay. come back out of the water you had to have a little thermal uh little something to help you with the cold interesting um if you take one of the versatile dogs that i've owned over the years pointer german short hair anything like that you get him in cold water and come out he's not real comfortable okay you know i mean truly cold water so so these retrievers are also there's a large water swimming component S swimming component for sure and that and that carries over to this day, if you want a good dog, if you're going to be a duck hunter, 
you could certainly go down the versatile road path. We'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. But I think you're foolish not to have one of the retriever breeds. They are known for going in the water. They are known for retrieving. They've got the eye. They actually have a better eyesight, eye set. They're, the shape of their eye is better for marked retrieves than other breeds. And that's just developed over, you know, not millennial, but it's developed over a couple hundred years of breeding. Uh, it's been proven that they could, they do a better job of marking. In other words, their depth perception. Mm. Um, if I were to take you out here in this cornfield with uh, one of my pointing dogs and I threw a 150-yard bumper in the air, I had somebody just propel something and he could watch, I would venture to say he was going to fall short of that mark. He's going to run to where he thinks it fell. And then he's going to start using his nose to look for it, hmm. where the Labrador has better marking capabilities. They, they, I guess that would come to depth perception with rods and cones. I'm not an ophthalmologist, but hmm. they are better at marking. Okay. And that's important to get to the game quick and not, you know, they can rely on their eyes and, until they can't, and then they use their nose, where the pointing dog will go right to his nose. Okay. Yeah. So that seemed pretty good for the retrievers. Yeah, it's 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 a specialist dog. It's definitely a specialist dog that and it's uh, fascinating and I wanted to ask this a little later. The breeds that have become so much uh pet dogs. You know the I mean growing up so many of my friends in the suburbs had golden retrievers, labs. You know it's interesting which right. breeds have become so uh tied into uh pet suburban pet type right and, and, if, and if you think about it almost every breed that you see out there was a working dog at some point i wanted to ask you that yeah i mean they either carried a cart they herded sheep they always had a job to do and i would think maybe except for like the cavalier king charles spaniel maybe mm. which is known to be just a lap dog mm. <laughs> um very few dogs out there uh didn't have a job originally historically that's so cool they, i mean they had to have a job and think about it how many people you know nowadays you know we we've got sophisticated dog food and in and, and probiotics for our dog back then the dog was eating whatever the farm or the family had extra uh even my favorite food purina you know it was pretty much a lot of yellow ground corn and you know in mm. 192 <laughs> oh i heard that in one of your podcasts yeah. that um the old timers it was the plot it was with uh, Bob Plot with the Plot Hounds. Mm-hmm. He was saying the old timers, you know, because obviously they're impoverished people living in these hollows and whatnot, that yeah. they would um, make a corn cake for the dogs. Sure. Yeah, that was cool for me yeah. to hear. Heavy, heavy carbs. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of protein. I'll tell you what, because I've told you I've gotten pretty into trapping for these past two seasons, and um, I've been putting up a lot of the beaver furs, and I save a lot of the fat. We've been doing stuff with the fat, been cooking with the fat. Rendering it down. Yeah. And then um, we've been eating the meat. But when you skin it, there's still tons of scraps and stuff. Yeah. The dogs, we have farm dogs. Or, yeah. Sorry, you don't know very much, too much about me. Uh, I rent a cabin on like 300 acres. Right. Our landlady's farm dogs, which are these huge Anatolians, they're epic. Wow. Uh, it's a Turkish shepherd. Is it dog. a white dog? Yes. Yeah. Anatolian, I, I think. There's two of them live down here. They're epic, but they go crazy for the beaver meat. The beaver scraps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they'll show up. They'll come out of nowhere, coming out, and then they'll they'll just sit next to me and eat every scrap I put on the ground. The wind probably picks up, and they're like, "Yep, yep." yep. And F- Philippe is skinning the beaver. <laughs> exactly, but it's only the beaver. When I've done an otter and when I've done raccoon, they're not very interested. Wow, it's this the beaver meat, and um, in trapping, beaver is one of the best meats for using as bait because all animals, all predatory animals, love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Okay, so we covered retriever. So now pointer is kind of the third category. Yeah, the third category are dogs that that have a, a gene called a pointing gene. All right. Oh wow! And and that is that comes in the dog's package in different levels. You know, it, again, you mentioned golden retrievers and labs being popular pet dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take a any breed of dog and continue to breed it as just a house dog. They're going to retain some of those that you know that that home that retriever that lives at the lake or the golden retriever lives in the yard. They still like to fetch, mm. you know. Oh, sure. They don't have a lot of prey drive anymore. The um, the pointing dog has that pointing gene, and if and I would venture to say if you bred them for enough years and never gave them a job to do, you would probably see some of those dogs still want a point game, but they would probably revert back more to that trailing and tracking, mm. which are what wolves, foxes, coyotes, mm. all the original canines, that's what they relied on. It was their nose bringing them to something that they could run down and take. Mm. Um, a good example of, of the point, though, is it's always referred to as the point or the pause before the, the pounce. Mm. So if you ever watch a fox hunt, mm. his ears are very keen, sometimes even under the snow. He's list, He's smelling the mouse, but he's also listening. So he stops. Yes. So he can get a real radar location, like that little that mouse is right over there. I can't see him, but if I pounce over there, I'm gonna feel him. He's gonna squeak. Then I got him. Right. Fascinating. So they took those dogs that showed that that pause before the pounce. Fascinating. And the ones that would hold that pause longer were. You know, ideally, the one they would want to use for breeding. So, originally, you know, of course, I never did this. I always wanted to do it on a meat eater episode, but we've we've never done it. Hmm. So, your your bird dogs, what we would call your versatile dogs or your pointing dogs, they were used before firearms. They were used for netting. Oh, so you would go out into a field where you knew there was quail because every every bird rests at night. They they're not nocturnal. You know. You would go out into fields in dusk or early morning before they move, and the dog would indicate game. And ideally, you would either have to make that dog stop because you could tell he was getting close, or those ones that could point would go on point. They that's where the setter gets its name from. They would set, they would lower themselves down, and then would describe the point. The the point would be a dog like describe what they're doing with their body. It's immediately freezing like a like a mannequin. It's it's going from full motion to the only thing I can relate it to is when we were kids we played a game called red light mm. and you would you would start sneaking up on somebody say red light yellow light green light red light and everybody no matter what position they were in had to stay there you know if you were on one foot uh, a lot of dogs you'll see they pick up their front foot mm-hmm. for a point that really all that really is is historically. The dog would be walking in slower. He's getting closer. He got close enough, but his front right foot wasn't down yet. Mm-hmm. But he knew if he put it down and, and spook made him. spook him. So that that foot just stayed up. How is he? Is he smelling the game? All smell. It's all smell. All smell. Wow. Yeah. Bird dogs do not. Well, of course they use their eyes. Hmm. Every 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 creature uses their eyes, but they do not rely on their eyes for finding game. God, just the power of of your. Um... The computer in their nose. Yes, to understand yeah. distance with smell. Right. Wow. And 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 that's why it takes them 
longer to, you know, like any predator, it takes them longer to become a proficient hunter. And there's a lot of mortality in young canines. They just don't make it. Mm. And of course, if they don't make it, they don't breed next year. And the best are always breeding. Now, um, do, now, do they give you a signal with their body in the direction? You you learn that. Yeah. Okay. What it, what you'll learn a lot when you're following a bird dog, and, and this goes with the flushing dogs, the the retriever breeds that we use as upland flushers, you'll see their body motion and you'll watch their tail, and then you'll see a little more animation out of them. Hmm. It's like it's like, uh, yep, I'm hunting, 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 I'm hunting. You'll see that tail. Some hmm. tails will almost spin. Wow. They'll go from a wag to like a, a sloppy spin, and now you're on, you're ready to go. Same thing happens with the pointing dogs, except that when that happens, they freeze up. Mm. And they're like, okay, don't move. I can tell you, if they could talk to us, it would be really handy. There's a bird 15 feet away from me. Now you go, you go produce the bird. And by your, you know, once you get to the dog, now that game bird, a lot of times that game bird, will play that game of, of waited out. He will sit there. He will rely on what used, he's used for years, living in the wild or a season, is let something pass by mm -hmm. so they don't see me. Like rabbits. It's like a rabbit. You can walk mm -hmm. right by a rabbit sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so they, he's like, the bird knows the dog knows he's there. Mm. And the bird's okay with that. Because right now, the bird's not in any harm. There's something over there looking at me, or it looks like it's looking at me. I know it's there. He knows I'm there. So far, no problem. My camouflage is working. And now as a hunter, we come up, and that unrattles the bird. Interesting. The so bird's the person like, is spooking him up. Oh, the person is like, uh-uh. I don't know what that is, but that's another thing coming in on me. And he ain't, he ain't stopping. And that's when that bird will flush. Fascinating. Um, so, yeah, the pointing breeds, their their specialty is, is pointing, is the pause before the pounce that gets extended. I've had dogs yeah. in the field that before I had tracking collars and before I had a beeper, well, there has been beeper collars for a long time, but I was actually hunting in an area with a German short hair of mine that I did not have a beeper collar with. Just We're just going to take a little short hunt out behind this farm. And Queenie went on point. And we're looking for and looking for and looking for. And she was in between all of us in a 50-yard circle, but she was in some CRP grass. She wasn't going to move. The bird wasn't going to move. And eventually our presence of looking for, like I was calling her, I was using a whistle <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm pointing a bird right now. You got to find me. And eventually our presence of walking around looking for my dog, up comes the bird and there goes Queenie. You know, the, most dogs will chase that bird for a few yards once they've had enough bird contact. Um, so, okay. So the hounds is mainly for fur bearers. The retrievers really, yep. mainly for waterfowl, ducks. Yeah, safe, 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 safe sentence. Yeah. And so the pointers. Can you describe the species of of birds that the pointers they are? Used it would for? be basically any ground nesting upland bird. Okay. And there's twenty some species if you count all the different quail, the different grouse, um, some of the birds that we've introduced in this country, being Hungarian partridge, hmm. ring neck pheasant. Um, there's another one. I'm not going to go into Himalayan snowcock. I don't believe that's a real bird. Okay, it is a bird, but it was it was introduced. Okay, and it lives up in some mountains. But uh, so yeah, the the pointing dogs are going to be after any of the upland species of of. And that term upland means it's away. It's not in water. It's, in, it's basically okay. Yeah, uplands can be a field. Uplands can be a word, a, a, a woodlot. 
it's you're in the uplands. Yeah. Well, that was an awesome introduction. Now let's hear what kind of dogs you have and what are you most passionate about doing? My, how many dogs do you have? Currently I have four. I've had as many as six. Okay. Um, that's, that's probably, if you're real, if you're real, like what we call a traveling wing shooter, hmm. I don't just hunt in my backyard. I like adventures. I like adventures with people hmm. as much as I, I don't go hunting without people either. That's interesting. I, mean, I do the opposite. You, I like you, being by myself. You like to just get out there. Mm -hmm. and, and I have, I guess, be, maybe because I was raised in a city with a lot of front porch conversations, mm. I like to have that car drive in the morning with my friend. I like to have that trip across the country with my friends. And then the end of the day at the tailgate with my friends. That's cool. I, I'm not into solitude. Mm. Now, I will get a lot of enjoyment out of where I live in Michigan is to take one dog out to a nice spot that I know might have a bird and spend about an hour in just total quiet and just listening. And like we're hearing these birds, you know? Yeah, I love it. it that's very, very enjoyable, but it's never going to be a trip I plan. Interesting. Yeah. If I plan a trip, there's so you like be, the, um, you like the, I'm a social camar person. camaraderie and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. The extroverted kind of hunting. Yeah. So, okay. So what dogs, you, what kinds do you have? Well, I started out with a German Shorthair. It was my first, what I would say is my first good dog. And that's a pointer? That's a pointing dog. And it so, is okay, a, so, so your main interest is upland birds, yeah? Right, right. Okay. I've never had, until this little English cocker, I've never had a flushing breed in, in 30 years. This that is my, dog is so cute, by the way. And she, and Adorable. She hunts, she hunts as cute as she looks. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should jump back. So the the... The, the retrieving breeds, the flushing dogs, when you're hunting with a flushing dog, what the one thing you have to have is control over the dog. Now, its natural range is very important to be wanting to be close to you. You can't shoot at a bird 50 yards away. So it can't be just buck wild. Right. Yeah. So when you're hunting with a flushing breed, you want that dog in there, you know, anywhere from 5 to 10 to 20 to 30 yards, but making these loops back. They're kind of like stirring the pot up out in the woods. Mm. Where with a pointing dog, you're kind of on stealth mode. He's mm -hmm. out there ahead of you, letting you know where the birds are. You you rarely find the birds without your dog. Interesting. I mean, unless you just get lucky and happen to be where one's, you know, sitting. Yes. Um, Which I told you, I've spooked a grouse in the, right. in a, in the National Forest. Yeah, they heard you coming yes. by yourself. and they're, Beautiful sound when they fly away. Oh, it's, it's almost nerve-wracking when it comes up and you don't expect it. It's mm. like... Yes, I had no idea what just happened. <laughs> right, you like, and, and sometimes you don't even see it. Mm -hmm. you know? But so I started out with a German shorthair pointer. Uh, the name is synonymous with where it was developed. Many, many of these breeds were all developed, what they call uh, east of the Rhine River hmm. in Europe, mm -hmm. and that would be, you know, that would be in France, Germany, Hungary, Poland. You know, all, all those that northern European countries. A lot of these dogs were developed there. So that was my first uh, step into it. And then I got a German wire-haired pointer um, probably after about four years. And uh, I wanted something. I, I started, I got a, I made a mistake and started reading some articles about the versatility, which my German short hair certainly had that capability. Um, but you read enough articles, you get a little romance with something. And I heard about the German wire-haired pointer that could, you know, track a deer at, during the day and, go pick up ducks out of the water and be a great bird dog in the field. And uh, so I, I, I went for it. And then I had, I had the German wire hairs for about 20 years total. Mm. 
Um, the, the one thing about a German wire hair and many short hairs and many of the other breeds, historically in Europe, you were hunting on private property. Mm-hmm. Let's just say Germany for a, a name of a place. And when you hunt on private property, you are the keeper of the game. The mm-hmm. state does not, Germany doesn't own the deer on the land. The farmer owns the land. So when you hear And just to be clear, here in America, the people of America own the land. Or sorry, the, the people of America own the wildlife. The landowner does not. If there's a deer that lives in your backyard and never leaves your yours. backyard, it's not yours. It's not yours. It's not yours to do what you want with. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, it's the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Anything on your property is is in, under your possession. <clears throat> and if you are concerned about having good animal habitat, you would want to have those ground nesting vermin, as they call it, or as we call it too. Uh, I don't believe they have a raccoon per se, but they have something close to a raccoon. They have skunks. They have badgers. Badgers, Any yeah. of those animals that would get into a bird, a ground nesting bird nest and devour the eggs or kill the chicks before they were able to fly away... You didn't want that on there. So they wanted their dogs to not only point and not only track big game, but they also wanted, if they came across any kind of vermin, it was expected to kill that vermin. Oh, interesting. And, and not just bark at it until it runs up a tree right. or into a hole. Right. I mean, go in there right down to the, what they call now, they refer to as the teckle. Um, it's, a, it's a version of a dachshund. And a dachshund, the German translation is badger dog. Mm, so the little, little wiener dog the little wiener dog goes you, after a badger the little wiener dog that you know today will go into a badger hole confront it kill it and drag it out that's shocking yeah. because the badgers in the weasel family and those guys are they're, wild they're fighters wow they're fighters but a dog can be a heck of a fighter wow and uh so and there are people that use the teckles and the the wire-haired dachshunds which is what a teckle is kind of um we don't need to go into that rabbit hole but you know they're they're good tracking dogs. They're right, it, I, they're ideal for tracking for one reason. Their nose is so close to the ground. Mm. So if it's an older scent, it's it's right there. They're they're processing more molecules of scent on the ground. And uh, so in back to Europe, they wanted those grounds to be kind of vermin free. Interesting. So if you did have X amount of pheasants or partridge living on a, on a piece of property, your nest success rate was increased just by the fact that a lot of those, let's say, skunks, raccoons, possums, they were eliminated. Mm, By these dogs. By these dogs. Fascinating. So that became part of their breeding program. That dog had to have a heart. They call it a hardness. Interesting. And uh, now fast forward to World War I, we didn't get a lot of those dogs there in this country. There was a few. After World War II, where we spent a lot of time on the European continent, Mm -hmm. either, you know, not just during the war, but post-war a lot of these breeds started coming back with soldiers or they would find out about them and they'd be like boy i i would like to you know that dog hunts birds and oh it's beautiful and so they were they that's fascinating it was after world war ii that we got a real influx of some of the european breeds wow and and would say northern european breeds and uh but what we got along with that and i always said that if, if Germany had porcupines, they wouldn't have taught the dogs to do that. Mm. The real downside of those sharp dogs. They get hurt? Well, it's a, it's a $600 trip to the vet sometimes. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I don't know that I'm sure a dog or two has died from a porcupine quill that migrated into his mm. ear or his eye and caused mm-hmm. an infection. 
But the real inconvenience is a dog that wants to kill a porcupine, he doesn't win. He might kill it, but your hunt's over. Yeah. And, you know, if you get a few quills, no problem doing that on the tailgate with a dog, pulling out the quills. But if they actually kill that porcupine, you got a, you got a problem on your hands. Mm-hmm. And it could be a Sunday afternoon, and you got to go find a vet that will open up his doors or go to, God forbid, an all-night vet mm-hmm. that, you know, it's $300 just to walk in and say hello oh, because man. that's their job. They're, they're so, keeping the doors open all night. Okay, I wanted to ask, um, I heard on one of your podcasts that a guest said that, um, or maybe you said that there, in, maybe in Europe, there was a cave painting like from 6,000 years ago found with a hunter with his hunting dogs. Did you say that or something? Yeah, somebody mentioned that. It might have been. And I'm bringing that up. Yeah. My question behind that is um, how long, well, how long do you think that humans have has the dog been a part of the, the, of the a part of the hunt, a part of the home? Yes, I, I've heard ten thousand years. I've heard twenty thousand years. Do you think our so I, you know I've heard through other podcasts kind mm-hmm. of um, you know how the wolf became um, domesticated or friend of the human? Right. Do, um, were humans probably hunting with dogs for as long as that relationship kind of started up? I, I would think so. I, I just couldn't speculate that all of a sudden it happened on one day. Yeah. It had to be a slow, slow process mm-hmm. where I guess if I was going to paint that picture and use my imagination, there was a wolf pack and there was a, a nomad family of mm-hmm. Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. And they somehow tolerated each other. And they took the bones from camp or occasionally drove the wolves off of a fresh kill because they needed meat but yet they weren't they weren't able to kill the wolf and they found some some common what would you call it uh benefits of living in close proximity yeah yeah Yeah. to maybe even to the point where if you had those wolves in 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 an area where you lived and some other people were coming in maybe they would howl at night maybe they would bark at night and it would keep those villagers safe. I, I have no idea. Mm-hmm, it's all mm-hmm. speculation. Yeah. But I'm sure this took more than 20,000 years to do. And But the, the, what's so interesting is the partnership, like to both be working together for like a mutual right. gain is fascinating. Right. You're both, you know, I'm assuming that the early dog realized that this would help it get food and then it's helpful for the person to get right. food. Right, Um. Well, from there, maybe I can ask you, you also have an indoor dog only, right? Your wife has a little corgi she has or something? Two cor- well, she's had two of them. We have one right now. We okay. have one corgi right now. So you've had the experience of having just a pet, mm-hmm. and then you've also had the experience, well, your passion is mm-hmm. these hunting dogs, a lot of which are in kennels outside. I wanted to ask, um, do you feel that having the hunting and hunter, the hunting dog and hunter relationship do you feel that that's even stronger than the pet owner relationship I, like how would you describe I, it for yourself i would say for myself it's stronger because we we do what the dog was intended was what it was bred for so we're not only proud about how it likes to sit at our side at night we're also real proud when it goes out hunting with us um but well, describe but, some of that because i don't think I didn't grow up with dogs. Mm-hmm. I grew up with cats. I've never had a dog. I'm very interested in this. That's why we're talking right now. Yeah. Um, it was not self-evident to me while I lived up in New York that this is what a, the dogs love doing. Right. And in watching videos of it, it's very clear that the, the dog oh, yeah. is ecstatic to yeah. be doing this. Yeah. What 
what you kind of what you're getting to is when you met Taffy a little while ago. Oh, she yeah. jumped up on your lap like yes. she's known you forever. Yes. Okay. She does that to me too. Now, if we take Taffy out in that field out there and let her run the edges, she's not going to come to you for a pet or a kiss or sit on. If you stop to get a a drink of water or to tie your shoelaces, she's not going to run back to you. Mm. She's like, thank you. We're going for a run. We're mm. going for a walk. We're doing something. I would say it's the same with my wife's corgis, uh, her new one. Boy, it's a, it's a nice little lap dog. But if it had a sheep out in the backyard and it could spend some time mm. herding that sheep, I would bet its instincts would come back, you know, th- something we've never seen that dog do. The difference with most pet dogs, they're never... They're never really given the job, and they adopt they adapt very well to being a companion dog, mm. because the dog, the canine, wolves specifically, are a pack animal. It's very rare that a wolf, until it either is establishing a pack or it's kicked out of a pack from whatever overpopulation or too many males, um, they are pack animals. They are used to being sharing space with another creature. It was just the, it's the one animal. That's why a cat, you were raised around cats. Mm-hmm. You've heard how many cat jokes, mm-hmm. you know. You know, there, there, there's one I heard the other day, you know. It was about going up to heaven, and there was a, a cat and two dogs. And they said, describe, describe, oh, no, it's like St. Peter said, you sit on the right hand of, you sit on the right hand of the, of the throne. And he said to this Labrador, you sit on the left hand of the throne. And he looks around, where's the cat? And the cat's like, I'm in my throne. <laughs> he's already on the throne he owns it right yes they, they can yes. they it's why they can get by feral very well too yes um so yeah whatever happened historically i thank people for <laughs> whoever mm-hmm. made the wolf however the wolf got adapted to humans and the pack mentality it, it served us well and it, it's you, why it serves well in the pet world do you follow that guy caesar milan do you know anything about him i know the name he's but I, I he's followed super fun so he's um a Hispanic guy who became a celebrity dog trainer and um, he's got a bunch of shows and he's really got like a, a dog whisperer knacked. Like he he has these TV shows where he'll go up to problem dogs right. and with it, that are like biting their owner and then one second he just has it tame as can be. And a lot of it, I've actually kind of heard similar themes when you talk to trainers just about you're setting the, this, uh, that you're the alpha, that you're the dominant and putting kind of letting the dog know who's boss, a lot right. of elements of that. But um, why I bring that up is I'm wondering, do you think a lot of uh, issues with dogs have kind of out of control or having too much energy? Is it just because they're, these breeds that now have just become so domesticated are supposed to be doing a ton of like work? Probably, I, I would speculate the same, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, <clears throat> for instance, there, there are people, if you walked around Brooklyn enough where you, where you mm-hmm. lived, you would probably see some sporting dogs on a leash at some mm-hmm. point. Um, they adapt okay to being on a leash and being and going in a house, but if you let them go, they'd run right across the street and get killed by a car mm-hmm. because they still want to go explore. Their nose is pulling them, mm-hmm. you know, to something that they don't know what's out there, but their nose is telling them there's stuff out there, mm-hmm. and their their genes are telling them that. So, and and like I said, most house dogs. Um, they're they're a good pack animal, but for generations they have been bred without a job, and they kind of become a better house dog version. But there there's still some little dogs. When you talk about some of the dogs that are like not meant for the house, I would kind of blame that partly nature and partly nurture. Hmm. You probably have a dog that has a 
a, a gene that's just like, I want to do something. Mm. And you also have an owner that didn't establish the pack rules early on, mm. like crate training. Mm. Like, no, you sit and wait for dinner. You wait to go out the door. You you establish that early with the dog. And it it's called co-op in a dog in, in our world, in, in the judging world. That's called dog's cooperation. That is also the do- the amount of cooperation in a dog is there from the day it's born to the day it dies. There's dogs that'll run away from you every time. You've heard people, oh, my dog got out again. Mm-hmm. He's out wandering. There are dogs that will not do that. They have a higher level of cooperation. They want to, they got to stay together with you. In the breed? And from breed to breed. Yeah, okay. you can find that in every breed. Okay, well, I think we have some other cool things to talk about, but I think now might be a cool time to do our little storytelling. I grew up at 85th and Lawndale on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, it, when you grow up in the city, you, you play, you literally play in the street. If you want to play a little game of stickball or a game of soccer, you played with cars on the street and, you know, the ball would go under the cars. Uh, we didn't have a, a school lot that close to us where we could go and hang out at a school lot or a baseball lot. Um, but what we did have, just by the way Chicago was developed, there was two cemeteries. There was St. Mary's Cemetery and Evergreen Park. And they encompassed what would be three quarters of a mile. So it was three if, if it was one more quarter, it would be in a solid square mile of cemetery. And a lot of that, like many cemeteries, was completely undeveloped. And the one that was closest to me without crossing a big street, which our parents, it was kind of weird being brought up in this, you know, raising, I was born in the 50s. My childhood, I would say, began in the 60s. For some reason, our parents did not have a problem with us playing in the street in front of the house. Because the neighbors all had kids and they watched for that kind of thing. I, I don't remember any neighborhood kid getting, getting clocked out on the street. But if you crossed 87th Street, that was a big street, right? And people did occasionally get hit and killed. You know, whether it was an older person going across the street to a bus stop or, or whatever. And unfortunately, uh, one person I knew, a young, young man, died crossing that street. And, um, but we were real fortunate that the almost completely undeveloped side of Evergreen Park Cemetery happened to be on the north side of 87th Street. And it had a large, large woodlot. And to a small kid, it was, you could get lost in it. You really couldn't, because you're going to come out on a street or a railroad track. Um, it had very few grave, gravestones in that side. And the, the old part across the way was a lot more populated. You'd see funerals going on it. But this side, it was it was wild. It was truly wild. And believe it or not, it had a, a solid population of pheasants. Um, it we would we would flush it had natural prairie grass all along one north side of it and down the, the the west side of it. It had all kinds of trees. It had fox, squirrel, possum, raccoon. Never saw a deer. There was never a deer there that we saw. But everything else, it was just like a little wild piece of woods. And as soon as we were old enough to just start wandering, again, our parents didn't care if we played in the street or crossed the railroad track. But we couldn't cross 87th Street, and that was fine. We had the best cemetery out there. 
And I just had a, a couple of friends that were very much like we were. We were, everybody was outside in the 60s. You know, there was no television. Sesame Street wasn't even on yet, right? There was nothing on television for us to watch. So all kids were out playing outside, whether it was hopscotch or, or you know, doing anything in their backyard or being part of organized sports. And, but that cemetery was a little wilderness. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of fauna out there, a lot of flora. And uh, Ricky's desire and my desire to explore more, now we started crossing 87th Street without telling our parents. You know, we had to be careful. You know, we couldn't, couldn't come home telling one of them, like, hey, we, we, we didn't make it across the street or, you know. So we would watch the traffic. And then we started venturing out to what we, it was twice as big of an area. And a railroad track ran through it. And then we found a pond, and we found a little place to fish for bluegills. Uh, we tried, we tried fires out there. We tried, you know, cooking up a a bluegill you wouldn't even keep. We tried cooking up a bluegill out there and trying to eat it. I only wish that we found books on foraging for for plants because I'm sure we would have got into that. Um, we built forts out there. We even built at one point an underground fort. We 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 basically without permission. We went into our father's garages and we found some spades and we started digging. We heard about people who had underground forts and we're like, we need a fort. And we knew if we did it on the north side of the street, it would be found by somebody. There were a lot of kids. There was even an area out there when I said organized sports, there was an area out there that some of the kids played ball in so much, like softball or baseball, that the grass kind of stayed down and they basically had a little field and nobody ever bothered them out there. It was a place to play so we went to that south side with our shovels found places to cash them away found the right area that we thought would you know again there was undeveloped parts of all of this and we started digging a hole and it was kind of like Stalock 17 we also knew we couldn't leave the dirt there right otherwise someone's going to see a dirt pile and we would carry the dirt out to the railroad tracks and sprinkle the dirt around and we kept working on this and working on it and now now we have to have a roof over us and and uh, we would find sticks and limbs and, you know, deadfalls. And we would cover it up just like you would try to cover up a, a trap for a lion, you know, like a pit trap. Only we, we eventually would get enough foliage and enough branches or maybe a scrap piece of plywood that we found in the alleys. Um, you got to remember we had alleys in between everybody's houses in Chicago. And that's where everybody threw stuff out. We found a lot of materials for these forts walk in the alleys you know you'd see us carrying a a, a two by 12 and neighbor what are those kids doing walking down the railroad track with a two by 12 on their shoulder that's for our fort and so we literally for a few years we had an underground fort that was our place we had candles in there we had some books uh find a scrap of carpeting put the carpeting down there of course seasonally it would be flooded out seasonally it would be snowed out um, you, you, you wouldn't want to show the tracks in the snow. So wintertime, we, we didn't go to the underground fort. Um, but yeah, we, we just kind of, that was our wilderness. I don't think anything ever happened in the graveyard that I would consider spooky. What it would be more of is we were always afraid of getting caught. So we call them the cemetery police. What they really were was maintenance ground workers, but we referred to them as the cemetery police. So we are always like, uh, if you've ever seen a bunch of geese in a the field, there's always one goose that's got his head up looking around, right? They're not all feeding at the same time. So no matter what we did, 
That's why I kind of refer to that Stalag 17 or Stalag 19. We always, your eyes were always peeled for movement. So nothing, nothing scary, but we were, we kind of felt like the deer does when he wanders the woods. He always had to look out for the predator, right? And that predator would have been somebody who could have probably outran us, who was an adult. Um, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, we, we would not have talked back to an adult. We would have gave ourselves up if they caught us. Uh, we did learn to run pretty fast. Uh, we were chased many, many times, um, and we knew where to go, and we could outrun them. But we also knew if we were caught, we weren't going to resist arrest. So we were always on the guard for adults, basically. So if we were scared of anything, it would be adults. We'd see some kids going by or walking through. We'd just kind of lay low and act like we were doing nothing, and they just pass by. We just always opted to go out there and spend our days walking through the woods, walking through the field, flushing birds, and it just hit us that we needed to kind of, we wanted to forage. You know, we didn't know anything about plant foraging, but we started getting these ideas like, I wonder if we could get a pheasant and cook it. And we were probably only 10 years old. We, we didn't even know how to get a, procure a trap. The hardware stores in Chicago didn't carry traps, you know, like they do in South Dakota. Um, and one particular friend of mine, Ricky, and, um, and I, we wanted to get into taxidermy. And we thought, well, we've got all kinds of species out there that we could try to trap. But we, we, you know, we needed specimens to trap, to, to, to practice taxidermy on. And I don't know how Ricky got his hands on it. I think he sent away for it. Um, he got some, like, number one long spring traps. And literally, the first thing we were successful trapping was a pheasant. Now, man, it, I, I know the, uh, what, what's the rule of when you can't be tried for a crime? What's that called? Statute of limitations. I know the statute of limitations has really run out on this one. But back somewhere in 19, late 60s, early 70s, we were trapping pheasants by gluing corn with Elmer's glue to the trap plate. So the pheasants would come eating the corn and the pheasant that would hit the trap plate right by the neck. And we'd have a pheasant and then we'd run home and we would, we would get our Northwestern School of Taxidermy little magazines that we subscribe to. And we would literally get a, a, a knife. We'd have to ask for a knife from mom or dad. or you know We didn't have pocket knives per se back then. And we would start skinning and learning how to make the bodies of it. But it got into way more than that. It got into like reading books at a library about trapping and reading books about birds. And we weren't allowed to have any weapons, but we, as far as a firearm goes, uh, we were way too young for that. And neither of our parents, there wasn't a gun in the house. There wasn't even a hunter in the family. But Ricky and I, you know, some of the friends kind of came and went, but him and I really, really ramped up where we ran what we called the trap line. And we would, we would catch fox squirrels which uh, for some reason we had more fox squirrel in the cemetery than we had gray squirrel. They were a great, great subject matter for trying to mount. I'm not saying they came out real well, but uh, we learned to tan our own skins because we didn't know any tannery to send them to. So we had to get borax and, uh, and follow some recipe with, I forget the recipe anymore. We would flesh our hides and, and, and treat them and tan them, and then we would, we would mount them. And you did have to get some materials. You had to order glass eyes. You would always keep this, for what we did, we would always keep the skull of the animal. We would 
boil the skull, get the brain and the meat off. Then we would build back the cheek muscles and, and glue in the eyes with like wood glue. And then we would put the skin back over it. And as far as the body goes, it, w- it, was, it was, I guess the closest thing you'd call it was, was hemp or, or packing material. It was like wood shaving, but it was more plant-based. I think it actually might have been hemp. They referred to it as toe or hemp. And it would come in packing boxes. If, if you unpacked a dryer or a refrigerator or a piece of kit, it would, and so the supply of that, we didn't have to buy that. We could always find that from, from somewhere. And then you needed wire, and you'd have to go to the wire, you know, the hardware store to buy a, a, a wire stiff enough, malleable enough to, to shape and hold a form, but not so bendable that it would collapse on you. And we would literally, you know, we would wrap this, this packing material around the wire. The first wire would be like the vertebrae. It'd be much like doing a sculpture. So we would have something that resembled the body, which we had in reference because we saved the body. And then we would then, you know, at the same time, we'd be tanning the skins because if you don't tan the skin or you don't treat the hide, the fur is all going to fall out and it's going to smell and it's, you know, it's, it's a waste of time. So once that, once that skin was dried and prepared for, you know, properly, then we would literally dress that mannequin back in it. And we actually became pretty good at sewing. To this day, I'm a pretty good sewer because you have to take a little curved needle and now you got to sew these critters back together. My dad would take us downtown Chicago where we had, some, we had the Shedd Aquarium and we had the Natural History Museum. Um, again, he would take me and Ricky, that was my best friend at the time, and he would take us down there. And again, he wasn't worried about us getting lost. He wasn't worried about us getting kidnapped. He would probably go to a tavern and have a couple drinks and make a conversation with somebody. And he would be back in two or three hours. Of course, he walked in there a few times with us. But literally on a, on a winter day when we couldn't do anything, on a weekend, Dad, could we go to the museum? And going through and seeing the taxidermy that was done at the, at the Field Museum in Chicago, that sticks with me forever. I, I don't have a lot of taxidermy done. I, I kind of like the European, the simplistic, you know, um, the simplistic mounts that are they're emblematic of the hunt and the game, but it doesn't have to be a deer head, even though you'll see a deer head in, our, in this place. Um, the horns mean a lot to me. But yeah, that taxidermy that we would see from elephants down to hummingbirds. And later on in life, when my dad knew that Ricky and I were really interested in still in taxidermy in high school, um, he had a job, worked for the county, and he was a guy that never met a stranger either. He actually went to the museum one day when he was working and asked to talk to one of the taxidermists. Told him that his son and his friend were interested in it, and this taxidermist was a friendly guy. He said, yeah, bring him in some Saturday. And we did. Those guys work all the time. And we got to go into the back room of the field museum and watch, you know, the mannequins he was making. They're, they're true artists. I can kind of attribute my mom to this. And I, and I think a lot of kids went through this when we were kids. Going to funerals was just a, an everyday thing or a, an every month or quarter thing. Somebody was always dying, especially in a big city. Getting hauled to funerals and wakes and burial services. I never had a, a creepy feeling of going, like if we had to go to a funeral, I didn't, I didn't mind it. I kind of liked it almost. 
and and then growing up and hanging out in them cemeteries and walking through headstones and reading them i would find myself you know my friend would be 50 feet away he goes what are you doing i go oh i'm just i just noticed this one had uh, this was an old one look at the age on that this one was oh my god this one only lived to be you know 1923 to 1942 he must have died in world war ii and i found myself always kind of reading the dates and trying to picture a little bit of that person's life maybe and why why that person died and you know sometimes it would certainly say world war ii vet but the age sometimes would be there and the cause wasn't there and so i always found myself even going to a funeral afterwards i would just kind of wander and look at the look at the graves and to this day i can't say i've done it in the last year but to this day when i got to the valley this is such an established area I have perused the cemeteries in this area time and time again. And one of my goals is to find the oldest grave in the graveyard, which usually gets down to the point where you can barely read them or there's moss on them and they're very small stone. <clears throat> and I just always had this connection, probably from being raised that way, probably from certainly playing and having my wilderness be a cemetery. And, uh, and then it, it, in my love of history, without being... A bookworm I didn't have to be a bookworm but I could get a little bit of history in a cemetery um, one of the things I always noticed um, was you'd see a family plot boy you'd see a whole bunch of young you could tell young children you know you know and what's really cool about old graveyards is the headstones take it right down to the day it will say seven years three months 12 days they always did that on these if the, if the people had a little money you know uh, otherwise it might just say infant child but if the people had enough money for a marker historically always how many years how many months how many days and i just thought that was fascinating um i came across a grave i think i was in maine and it was a real tall monumental grave and it had different names of the family on the different four sides of this it was like a little mini uh washington monument you know real tall uh, uh not cylindrical but very tall like a little skyscraper real ornate and one of the women's name on the side it, it named the ocean she died in the ocean or on a boat on a trip from somewhere and it gave the so many degrees north longitude latitude of where her body was then put the rest in the ocean. Yet then her name was on the family grave and let you know that she was buried at sea. And I, I, I just love that little bit of history you get. And uh, you could even find it with pandemics. You know, there would have been during the, the Spanish flu 100 years ago. I am sure now with that knowledge, a lot of those children's graves I was seeing with the days, always young, I would bet a whole bunch of those people came to their you know came to their end from the spanish flu my children know right now that gravestone is going to be so descriptive that my great great grandkids someday will be able to get the story off of my headstone and that would be my goal i would i'd really want it, i'd want it to take you a couple minutes to read all the things that i was passionate about from dogs to shotguns to people um, there might even be a little microphone on there to indicate my love of talking on a microphone.
Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. And um, your story, talking about the taxidermy, I'm very intrigued by taxidermy. My girlfriend has done little bits with uh, turkey feet and feathers. We've mm -hmm. preserved little paws and salt. Yeah. We've had our first taxidermy done by a taxidermist. I saw your otter. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. gorgeous. Yeah. It's so expensive, but we'd like to save a little bit of money every month. To, to, to us, it's like you're totally honoring a creature. You know, you're creating like a naturalist collection, like you'd see a natural history right. museum. What do you think that it was um, from your kid point of view that you were so blown away by, by the Natural History Museum, by the taxidermy? What do you think it was? You know, I'm just going to go to our earlier conversation about dogs, how um, a, a dog's genetics, they don't expire. The, in a dog's world, in a pointing dog world, you've got search, pointing, tracking, water, desire, cooperation. Those are genetics, comes in all different volumes and when we breed, we try to keep the volume levels up. We want, we want to be good at all of it. And I think with people, it's the same way. It's just something in me, some, some ancestor was a mountain man or, a self or, or, or a, an adventurer that cut his own trees down, started his own garden. You know, if you, if you trace back families, sometimes they just go back to cities. My dad's side, we've got it all the way back to the 1700s, right in the same town of Germany. They were all bakers. And I don't know if you've ever seen a what I would call a pedigree for a dog, but in, in Germany, a birth, the birth record and, a, and the divorce records are very descriptive. And all the names from my side, I'm the last one in my line with the, with the same last name, but the, the job they did in that town was listed on their on their record like mm -hmm. if somebody did a you know th that father and then there's four grandparents there's eight great grandparents you found out what every one of them did farmer baker millwright or you know gunsmith whatever they did um but somewhere and one of my parents side had to be somebody that was always had wanderlust and yes. always had uh like wh why does the bark on that tree feel different than the bark on that tree mm. you know why does poison ivy you know make me uncomfortable when that tree that plant doesn't and then there's people who could live right here in the valley that have never climbed a tree they mm -hmm. don't have a desire i had a desire to climb every tree i don't know why <laughs> so i think it's genes I, I really do that's fascinating um you know when you're telling your story about taxidermy with the birds you know it may, what it made me think of is maybe uh in a past life you were something like john james audubon right because he would back in the or one guess, of his ancestors one, that created him. Yeah, because yeah. back in I think he was 1700s in Pennsylvania, I think, and those yeah, areas. Yeah, he was way back there. And he would he would hunt tons and tons and tons and tons of birds, and because he was a famous, I think it was watercolor, but a famous painter. Right. Of all these birds, he's renowned for this and became legendary in Europe. He was legendary, even right. though he was here in America. But some I've seen some documentaries. The way he would do it was he would hunt the birds. And then he would bring them into his studio and he would tack them up. He would spread their wings out mm -hmm. and he would pin them on these boards that right. were kind of gritted. And then he would have his uh, to light to scale pieces of paper or whatever. Right. And it would be gritted. And that's how he would paint these like perfect. Just perfect, perfect example of. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you saw that, that what would have been color, color pencils back I in the day? I think it's watercolor. Watercolors probably. 
if you saw that, you knew exactly what that bird looked like in the wild. Right. He got every detail. And his thing was to scale. So right. like the, his books, which are legendary, the bald eagle is the size of a bald eagle. And the tur- you know, the books are absolutely enormous. Yeah. And yeah. Um, some might have 10 birds on a page because they fit. Here's a cool tidbit. Um, something I've really enjoyed that I've learned from the herbalist community is they'll do plant walks where you go with a group and an herbalist or a forager or, or will point out stuff and tell you all about it. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a legendary guy in Ohio called Paul Strauss. And mm-hmm. I was doing one of his plant walks. And do you know, have you heard of the pawpaw tree? No. Mm-mm. So the pawpaw tree is really fascinating because it's a, uh, it's a native tree, but it's, it's very, I think it lived through the ice age or whatever, but it's uh, very tropical and it has tropical fruits on it. It's the largest fruit in North America. They're kind of these funky, like uh, uh, custardy kind of, a tropical, um, is it like a man, a mangoey kind of thing? It's it's crazy. It's very tropical, but it grows here yeah. and it's legendary. And supposedly, um, this guy Paul Strauss in the Plant Walk was saying how the tips of the pawpaw tree have a, a very fine little bud at the end of the leaves, mm-hmm. at the end of the stalks, and that John James Audubon would use those to p- do his his bird paintings. Really? Yeah. He found that was just the a right paintbrush. The right paintbrush. Yeah, the pawpaw, the tip of the the tip of the of the bud. How do you relate to that being I've seen you know your illustrations are mm-hmm. gorgeous. Thanks. I, I know you're not using a light board and tracing them out of a book. No. You know what what do you think about like are you going for the most modern paintbrushes and the best oh. or do you have this desire to try the tip of the pawpaw? <laughs> I've tried it a little bit. I do kind of just use the industry standard stuff, but I do kind of work old school because what you've seen I is, saw your ink drawing. It's dipping. Right. So I use a nib, like a metal nib, and I dip it into ink. Right. And so you kind of are doing that is old school, right? Right. That's and old so school. you don't want that you know, you have to like with a gun or something like that, there's a technical element that, you know, you can easily spill the ink, it'll right. drop. But what is cool is last year I was trying to do like old timers. Um, one thing with trapping is you have to you have to dye your traps mm-hmm. to protect the metal so it doesn't rust. Right. And old timers would do that with forged stuff. So right. the black walnut tree has those those black walnuts. The husks. Correct. Yep. And yep. herbalists will use those to dye you know, you can use the hull for medicine. It's anti-parasitic. You can yeah. ingest it. Wow. Um, but I use those hulls to dye my traps and they were like super black. But then my girlfriend and I, we rendered the trap dye into a thick ink. And I've used, I've done some of my drawings with really? the black walnut ink. So that so, was cool. That's old yeah, time. Yeah, because you're, you're going with inkwell and... Yes. The name, what was the name of that pen? It's a nib is a the nib. point, is the metal right. point. Just a, like a paintbrush handle with that little metal point on it. Correct. Like they wrote the Declaration of Independence with. Exactly. Same type of tool. Exactly. So it's cool to, because I like kind of some stuff we're talking about. I love the historical element. Right. I love doing old timey stuff. Right. Like with the trapping, I used the raccoon fat. I tried, I've waterproofed some of my boots with it. Right. Trying that out. Um, I love that stuff. Um, well, that was an awesome story. We've been talking for a good amount of time. I think we could kind of wrap it up. Sure. I think an awesome, well, tell me how you feel about this. The first podcast I ever listened to you uh, of yours by chance was an incredibly powerful one about the loss of one of your dogs. And, you know, I haven't had a dog. It was very sad to me when my cats passed away. Mm-hmm. But hearing you, um, you know, it's very emotional to hear you talk about it. It's very moving to hear you talk about it. Um, in my research about people with their hunting dogs, 
it seems as though it's a theme about having a very special dog. So I thought it yeah. could be in closing, have you in your life, in your life in the outdoors, have you have you had a certain dog that was extremely special and why? I I would say when it comes to the the loss or the passing of a of a of a dog, I think to me it's something that I get more used to. Hmm. Um, the the podcast that you referred to, I can't remember which dog that was. I talked about it was pro- it was one of your more recent ones, right? So that was probably uh, Artie, my first Bracco. Hmm. Um, she was a great personality that everybody loved her. She didn't have a mean bone in her body. She didn't chase fur. She she was a sweetheart, and she also I, I bred her a few times. I, I, I call my kennel building where I record my podcast and where my dogs all live. Um, even though they're kennel dogs, they have couches and pads and, you know, they can, they have a lot of freedom in the kennel until nighttime. I lock them up for safety. Um, yeah, that would have been with Artie. I, I've lost a lot of dogs over the years. From you, old age? Yeah. You you and, and from accidents. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I ever talked about on my podcast, I doubt if I ever did I I had two dogs that uh I was at a seminar I was going to a seminar with a couple of three-year-old dogs and I had four dogs with me and at six o'clock in the morning when I came out two dogs were dead in their kennel and it that was probably harder than any dog that I had to have euthanized because there was no time to you, you had all these questions in your head why what did I do wrong what happened to them um, we were in a big state park in Indiana and these two three-year-old dogs, I could trust them to run around a hundred yard circle in the woods, go pee, go poop. You know, I didn't have to put them on a leash. I had a younger dog that I couldn't trust like that. So he was on a leash and I had an older dog that was, um, he was so friendly. He's the one you've seen on TV all the time. Bravo. He wouldn't leave your side unless you had a shotgun in your hand. He figured he's going to get a treat or somebody's going to pet him. Well, those two younger dogs got into some kind of poison, whether it was natural or fermented or, um, or purposeful. We don't know. Um, but it, they acted completely normal. When I put them in the kennel at night, and I was, we were staying at a hotel on the grounds, and a good friend of mine, Gary, was with me, and we came back to the truck, and I could hear, I could hear Miller scratching in the kennel. And I know if I let him out, he's going to be the hardest one to deal with. So I opened the middle kennel, and there's Oscar, dead as a doornail. And it, it, it's something you don't mistake a dead dog for a sleeping dog. It just doesn't, it's not the same. And then I started, quickly I opened the third kennel door, and there was Katie against the door, dead just like Miller. And... That's that's one I, that's probably the hardest one I've ever had. The hardest day of owning a dog. Um, I've never gave up. I've never said I can't do another one. Um, but to come out, it would be the surprise to find two dogs, any one, but two at the same time. You you know they had it. Whatever they got into, it was the same thing. They it was probably a bucket of water that was fermented that had who knows what. Maybe a natural plant that if it was ever held in water over a course of a winter, it becomes toxic. Um, they did a lot of tests on the dogs. I actually iced one of the dogs down in the kennel so they could do forensics on it. 
there was a lot of speculation, but no one determination other than liver failure and internal bleeding. Um, that was that was really the hardest one. But the the one you're referring to on the podcast, yeah, I just felt like sharing what it feels like, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to put that dog down. It's it's very difficult. I know people who literally will skip a few years before they have another dog. I'm the opposite. I want to have two in reserve. I, I really do. I, I would almost say that I want to be like the Egyptian kings. I'd like to get buried with my oldest dog. Mm. I, and my daughters have always said, Dad, we're not going to be able to do that. And I said, if you were resourceful, you could do it. <laughs> and they said, but Dad, we would have to euthanize one of them. I said, but wouldn't you think he'd want to go with me if he was that old? And uh, I've always joked, you know, I'm not a, I was, I was raised kind of religious like a lot of people were in the 60s, um, you know, with a reverence for a supreme being and, and reverence for your parents and, you know, just a lot of reverence. We don't really know the mysteries. But I always said, if you could throw a gun, some shells, and a dog in my casket, and if there is some afterlife, I don't want to get there and somebody says, why didn't you bring a... <laughs> a gun and a dog if you loved it this much right <laughs> and i don't want that to be the case so um i am going to have ammunition and a gun in the casket i guarantee that that's that's going to happen because i'm not getting cremated i'm i'm going into ground um and if of they can, course after your cemetery your child your whole life of cemetery has wandering, to be buried in you need ground. a gravestone i have to have a gravestone and uh and it's it's going to have a lot of it's going to have a lot of verbiage on it mm. and uh but yeah, that that one I did with Artie, I just wanted to share with people, and it just I just felt like hitting the microphone, and I was just walking around. I was talking to the rest of my, I was kind of talking to my listeners, and I was talking to the other dogs, and a good friend of mine I talked to a lot. Um, just had to just had to put a dog down, probably three weeks ago, um, and he said, "Do the other dogs know when one of the dogs is missing?" and gone that day and i said i've never seen any proof of it um i know they can act differently because their situation has changed um there's not another dog to play with they might be like boy what am i going to do now Mm. but i can tell you when you have four or five dogs and one of them goes the other three the next day is just ends in y it i've never seen it make a difference to any of my dogs that's fascinating yeah and uh what it does is it makes a difference to us Mm -hmm. you know and uh yeah i mean hearing your podcast like i said it's very moving and it's it's very obvious that it's like the death of a family member without a doubt right there's a real famous in fact if you want to we could hit pause and i know you can edit this in there's a George Bird Evans quote that I have read maybe once on the air or twice. I like to open some of these podcasts with quotes. You can give it to me later and I'll read in the intro and I'll say that you gave it to me. I'll send it to you. Okay, cool. Um, I can't get through it without choking up. Wow. And I I have had people that heard me. I I used it as some content on one podcast, but I've had so many people write me, Ron, can you send me that George Bird Evans quote? And... And I, and I keep it on my desktop. I don't keep it in a folder. I go click, boom, send, and and I always get a thank you back because they need to read that. And anybody who loves dogs needs to read that. It doesn't matter if it's a bird dog or not. 
it it will choke you up. Well, should we have you read it to end this? We we can. Let's do it. All right. That's more beautiful to come from you. Hang on. He'll be trying to get through it without crying. And I got to have the microphone create the shade on my laptop here. So I was really fortunate enough, the curator the curator of Old Hemlock, which is where George Bird Evans, who was a another fantastic illustrator. I don't know if you have ever looked I him don't up. know him. Oh, you are going to be fascinated. He did drawings during the war of tanks, torpedoes, engines, all for the military, hand-drawn for manuals mm. and and other architectural type drawings but he was renowned and he also did a lot of magazine covers his his artwork was beautiful and i got to go in his house without a without the the tour just the curator and we went through his bedroom and his is where his pens and pencils and his typewriter uh, where is this it's it's not far from here oh it's, i saw your podcast about it yeah i didn't listen yet but you was, said you uh, had goosebumps all the time oh it was just I felt like I, I got to meet George and and I saw this in this was there at the house and I, I took a snapshot of it and I got it from a book later. But this is from George Bird Evans. It says, having bird dogs, you distill your life to a succession of short lives, each of them a dog's. From each, you learn a little of the joy of living, observing his inexhaustible enthusiasm and between naps. His eagerness that makes each day more significant for being a day in a life so short. You watch the pup grow out of him as he becomes more serious, but there is always a good-natured disposition and his faith in you. There are people who have children in the hopes of providing themselves someone to be with there at the end. For your dog, it is only you who are there when that time comes. A right thing, for it puts you in the position of doing something for him after he has been done so much for you. And uh, I got through it. I'm, I'm getting a little choked now. But, you know, that is what, especially in the, this applies to all dogs, but when you spent years traveling with your dog, um, successfully finding game that you may not have found without him, and as you watch him grow old before your eyes, and you know he wants to go, but he can't go anymore. You can't drop the tailgate. He's too arthritic. You mean he wants to go out hunting? He wants to go hunt, but mm. you have to talk to him and say, you're too old. Mm. You're just too old, buddy. I can't, I can't do that to you. You won't be able to walk for three days mm. if I take you hunting. And when you're a dog man, you sign up for that. Mm. And, uh, and that's why the passing of a dog, this, this little quote from George has always gotten me through it. Um, it's it's we owe it to them it's not a sacrifice on our part it's we owe it to them and and you know it the day you get a dog i mean unless you don't know what the future holds or you if you're very old pretty much count on outliving your dog mm -hmm. and you better be prepared for it it kind of sounds like it's chapters of your life are yeah. defined by these dogs oh yeah all, all mine i can relate to when my kids are how old they were what dog i had it's all like a a timeline and uh, 
I've always said there's there's a couple dogs that stand out in my memory, but there isn't one of them that I didn't enjoy spending time with. Mm. Always. Well, that was awesome, man. Thank you for sharing this. And I had a really great time talking to you. I guess in closing, if people are interested in learning more about all this stuff, uh, should they just go to your podcast first? Sure. I, I don't do, I, I've got a website. There's a few stories on that readers or listeners will send in and say, do you mind if I send you a story? And if it's good, there's a few stories like that, you know, about a, a certain hunt or a certain dog, but it's basically a you know, it's an electronic web. It's it's a electronic newsletter. It tells you when to. Uh, you're not going to gain a lot from it, other than if you subscribe to it, you will get some. You know. And the podcast is called the Hunting Dog Podcast. The Hunting Dog Podcast everywhere, everywhere. Just ton of listeners, podcasts. ton of episodes. Is yeah. there a particular episode that you think is like super great for first timers that you what? really love? No, I I've been asked that a lot, and oh, I can't. Okay. The ones I enjoy the most are when I do what we're doing today. Mm. Is when we're sitting across from each other. Mm. Um, when they're done on the phone, they, there's always a hard stop or you got to get a, you got to mm. stop them for a second. Um, so any of the ones I do in person are, are some of my favorites. Um, but not, not one in particular. I will say that I do, sometimes I do something just on conservation or forestry. You're not going to learn anything about dogs. Sometimes I do things about a dog breed with a person that I kind of vet and know that, this person's a good representative of that breed, so I'm going to have him on the show. Um, those I think are always interesting. Some are just about wildlife, just about some about woodcock, woodcock, uh, which we really didn't go into. A fascinating bird that we pursue with our dogs. Um, that's a bird that you probably, probably could not hunt too successful without a dog. Um, they are masters of camouflage. They're masters at sitting it out. That's why they're good for training dogs on. Um, but yeah, there's episodes that are after a poker game in my kennel at a high top table, and it's just turned on, and the you know five or six of us are you know two sheets to the wind. Those are some people's favorite episodes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I try to I just try to make it as real as my life. It's to me, it's always around people. Yeah, it seems so. I I I love the. I'll but, say from my point of view, what your recent one about the African poaching, training the African poaching dogs, that is fascinating. That's yeah. a really great first episode, I would say, to listen to. Yeah, that is. And to see what what those dogs can do, you know, to this day, like we've messed a lot of things up on this planet, but dogs can be one of the things that can help us get some of that back, mm. you know, in the case of Africa with poaching. Yes. Um it's incredible. Beautiful. It's it's a tool that um, I don't think they've been doing it that many years mm. um, with with the dogs, the, mm. the canines. Uh, I think that's a kind of a newer phenomenon, and it's it's paid them in spades. Mm. And and those dogs are just all about work, you know. Um, they're and they're not all sporting dogs. They're working dogs. You know, a lot of Malinois and German Shepherds. My landlady has a little Malinois, a puppy, super cool, yeah, jet black. Jet black, yeah. It's not aggressive, because they're oh, it's wild, it's, crazy energy. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be nervous, <laughs> and I'm a dog guy. I'd be nervous. All right, well, let's wrap it up, man. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad you reached out to me, like many of my listeners, and uh, I didn't know what it was going to turn into, and I Neither had a really, really great time. And uh, hopefully, you know, in a year or two from now, all some of your experiences you've talked about, I will have experienced it because right. hopefully I'll have my own little doggy. 